the readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is Bookin, brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. In a first for the Bookin podcast, I have two authors as my guests. The first is Hugo Locus and Nebula Award winning author Amal El Motar. The second is sensational, critically acclaimed novelist and writer Max Gladstone. They are the authors of This Is How We Lose the Time War, a novel unlike any other I have ever read, which was published by our friends at Saga Press. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, an honor to have the two of you here. And Amal and Max, my first question for the two of you is one that I am asking every author I've had on these past couple of weeks, and it is a two-part question. The first part being, how are you personally dealing with the circumstances surrounding the coronavirus? And two, how are you approaching the marketing of your book in these strange and unexpected times? Question. And now you want to tackle that? Sure. I guess we both have really different answers to it uh, in a way. Yeah. Different circumstances. So take a run. Yeah. It's actually weirdly, um, weirdly easier to answer the second part first for me, um, which is, I mean, talking about the marketing of our book, uh, it's, there are, there are so many angles to it. Um, There's, there's the kind of outermost layer of, uh, having felt enormously grateful that the that we're we're, we're constant almost constantly certainly every day tagged by readers uh, on Twitter or Instagram telling us how much they love the book or how much they took comfort in reading the book in these circumstances or have created incredible fan art or you know just engaging with the book in ways that make it very clear that it's being some kind of to them or, or taking part in their own coping strategies with self-isolation. So given that we're kind of being made aware of this as often as we are, it, it makes the self-promotional aspect a little bit easier than it might otherwise be, I think, uh, because we had the paperback drop on March 19th, which was just when a lot of different parts of the world were, were really starting to lock down, mm. uh, which meant that like there were various like promotional plans were suffered, and uh, we were supposed to, Max was, was going to actually come up to Ottawa um, on, on April 3rd, which was last week. Is that how time yep. worked? So, I, yeah. So, uh, so Max was initially going to be coming up for um, a launch that was going to, you know, uh, take part with my local indie perfect book um, and but a whole bunch of stuff and that obviously cancelled and um, so there, there is like I, I've definitely seen friends struggling with uh, the idea of promoting their books which seems like a really frivolous activity in the midst of what everyone is going through but I just felt it just like enormously moved and grateful uh, for everyone kind of acclaiming that no, no, we, we really want things like art <laughs> to help us get through this and knowing that knowing that people are, are responding to it in all these various ways just makes it that much easier to hit retweet <laughs> whenever people say nice things about it uh, or just talk about the fact that it's out in the world and paperback and, and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think one of the real joys of publishing 
time war um, and of writing it was has been seeing it go off and connect with whole communities of people. This is a book that friends run out and tell their friends that they need to buy. People connect through it. We've seen people try to, or starting to write letters to one another in part because of it. And that's awe-inspiring and breathtaking. And then, and even in the very, um, I think, difficult moment that a lot of people around the world are in right now, it um, is allowing some folks to come together. And, that's wonderful and it's something that feels very easy to support it feels a little less that like the um well the, the sort of failure mode of book promotion always sort of standing there in the corner waving your flag pay attention to me pay attention to me <laughs> but it, that's not how it's been at all with certainly the paperback release and throughout this book's life People have really wanted to share it with one another, and it's been a privilege to get a chance to participate in their enthusiasm and their uh, generosity. Oh, I was going to say, in terms of how, like, uh, we're, we're personally, I say we, obviously, singly, mm-hmm. <laughs> separately are coping with the, uh, the situation and stuff. Um, I had, I, I've had slightly extraordinary, well, <laughs> that word, what does that word even mean anymore in this, in this context? Um, my situation is uh, a little weird even within this context because uh, I feel like I sort of had a weird dry run at the self-isolation and awfulness because uh, <laughs> my my partner had... Um, who, who is Scottish, had gone overseas and gotten very sick while overseas, apparently not with uh, COVID-19, um, but was unable to return home for, like, several weeks as a consequence. So there was, and this was, like, end of January to end of February. Uh, and then there was a teeny tiny window of time in which I could um, go over there and sort of, like help him come back and stuff. Uh, so there was a lot of a, a lot of very weird. Oh wow! Look, I am doing all the things that no one is supposed to be doing during the pandemic, like traveling internationally and stuff. Uh, so I ended up being running back and forth um, between airports, between Canada and, and between Ottawa and Glasgow, uh, from like March twelfth to March nineteenth. Uh, and then as soon as we got back, we self-isolated for two weeks. So um, we are now out of the quarantine period, but we are still in um, self-isolation, obviously. And it's it's just very weird that, like, at the time that everyone else has been kind of coping with all of the lockdown stuff, I actually have been feeling this kind of countercurrent of relief because I am actually reunited with my partner after a uh, long separation mm-hmm. that has like nothing to do with this. So it's it's just very weird. It's like uh, I've been in a kind of just alternate timeline. Um, and uh, and now, now we're actually like matching on to everyone else's rhythms of, oh, yes, just about do you for an emotional meltdown now and oh no the time when I'm going to be tired of cooking is coming up and it's been, it's been kind of weird but also weirdly helpful to be kind of out of step with 
like all of my friends' rhythms uh, because they have kind of signposted for me the the ways in which I was going to probably experience the isolation stuff. Right. Uh, thank you very much. The next question that I have to ask the two of you is, how did the idea for this novel come about and was it a challenge to write or did the novel's format, uh, which involves letters being sent back and forth between two protagonists, make for a natural composition? Well, Amal and I became friends and realized pretty early on that we loved each other's work and that we really wanted to work on something together. We'd been writing each other physical letters back and forth, partly as a way to just escape the panopticon of the internet, but also I think there's a kind of material investment there. A letter really is this very personal gift that you're preparing for somebody else, or it feels that way in 2019, 2018, 2020. there's only one copy of it. It goes out. You're really trusting other humans to pass it from hands to hands and deliver it to somebody else. And then the thing they get will not be a copy. It will be the literal piece of paper that you smudged while you were trying to fold it into the envelope. Uh, and so knowing that we wanted to write something together the and having this history of correspondence, the idea for the f- structure of the novel came pretty quickly. But also it was something that we thought would allow our two different styles and voices to really come together. We love each other's work, but we also have a different approach to a lot of things. We wanted something that would allow, we wanted a form that would allow both of us to bring our full talents to the page rather than trying to find some sort of uh, compromised middle ground, sort of overlap zone. And what ended up happening was we developed started playing around in one another's territory borrowing stealing running with um, themes or concepts the other one was introducing and we ended up i think growing beyond the limits of our own perspective throughout the writing of the novel yeah absolutely and i also think it's like a a a lovely irony um which also feels kind of weird to talk about again in the current context of self-isolation and stuff but even though the The book is written in terms of, it's mostly epistolary, these letters are going back and forth across, you know, unfathomable reaches of time and space and stuff, but we were actually writing it while sitting together in the same place uh, across, like, a desk from each other in a gazebo. (laughs) So, um, the, the, you know, ironically, these letters were not written as missives, uh, even though they were, like, the, the structure was inspired by our literally having done that. But we were actually just sitting across from each other, and one of us would write the letter, and the other would write the situation in which the letter was being received. And we were doing that at the same time, and we would discuss the situation in which the letter was being received, but we wouldn't discuss the letter itself, so that it would be a surprise both to the person writing it and to the person reading it. Um, And we would swap back and forth in this way. And uh, the thing that we realized in terms of our different strengths and approaches is that Max also writes four times as fast as I do. Uh, And so this meant that at first, um, Max would would write a section uh, and I would have to kind of wait for me to, to well, to to finish mine. Uh, But then as we went on, we both started changing our approaches slightly where Max slowed down and I sped up and we started finishing our sections without coordination at all at exactly the same time. So by like, you know, act two or so of the book, we were just 
finishing at the same time, swapping laptops, reading what we'd written, going, this is so great, and then swapping them back and, and continuing. So there was, it really felt to me like there was an aspect of, um, of, of that composition that kind of relied on us being in the same place or it just, like, we, we didn't think about it that way at first, I think, but like, I, I think that we were open to the possibility of, of writing in other ways, um, but I really feel that it gained something uh, sort of ineffable from our being in the same place, even as we were writing people very much not in the same place. Well, it's kind of the mirror image of what of correspondence in general, right? When you're writing, you're imagining the other person's physical presence, um, reading the story, reading the story, reading the letter. And then when we were working on this, you're sort of imagining the absence, imagining what absence would be like. Right. Right. That sounds like exactly. a lot of fun. Yeah. That sounds like a, a fun writing process. And the the protagonist. Yeah. Um, the protagonists in this novel, this is how we lose the time war, go by the names of blue and red. And all sorts of things run through my mind when I think of blue and red. Uh, there are the birds on the cover of the novel, uh, a cardinal and a bluebird, and there's fire and ice, and there are Democrats and Republicans, there's knowledge and rage. Um, why blue and red? So I want to jump in real quick and say that the Democrats and Republicans thing was... was of great concern to me uh, because I very much didn't want like anyone to map uh, to map those particular political entities onto either of these characters. And then I reassured myself by remembering that, like, wait, but politics outside the U.S. those those valences are actually swapped. Like the conservatives in in Canada and in the U.K. are blue and the liberals are red. <laughs> so, uh, so I, I hope that those things cancel each other out in terms of trying to find like one-for-one one associations with uh, like geopolitical representations of red and blue. Um, but, uh, but definitely, I, I think that we had a lot of things in mind, but the, the core thing for me that felt like the most um, capacious sort of analog uh, was the the ends of the spectrum of light uh, in particular because <laughs> because Max is the one who like explained to me what redshifting actually is uh, and like and, and did so through the medium of like hand-drawn diagrams that he took photos of on his phone and texted to me uh, and it's, it's just like it's a really lovely memory I have of our early friendship of like me expressing this insecurity I have over not having uh, like not having literally not having been taught this this aspect of physics because in high school like there were two streams and you could go chemistry or physics and I went for chemistry instead and so I just never like there are some very basic things of high school physics that I wasn't taught and that I had to absorb through like uh, pop culture and science fiction ultimately um, and so uh, and and that teaching so I have like you know redshift and blue shift um, in in my head uh, partly as as a thing for this um but there are also other things like uh steven universe <laughs> um yeah. i don't know i don't know if we're allowed to say that one but yeah so we're allowed to say whatever we want it's our interview <laughs> <laughs> i do think that the, the, the spectrum um i do think that the spectrum was the root of a lot of it um not only thinking about 
red shifts and blue shifts, but also thinking about how there's a sort of underlying physical reality of light, like what we see as red or what we see as blue are different wavelengths. So there's a physical reality to that, but you can also um, change the, um, you can change how things appear by changing your direction inside them, right? You, something is red shifted if it's running toward you and if it's, it's blue shifted if it's accelerating away from you. So the same physical reality has a different interpretation depending where you are in relationship to it. Um, and for, as you're working with um, characters who are sort of time traveling or who are on different sides of this seemingly insurmountable divide from one another that felt really rich. It felt like a good soil to try to grow something in. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much. And are we to take it from the font on the cover of the novel that ML wrote blue and Max, you wrote red, or did you trade off? You cracked the code. That is yes, the secret that is the- <laughs> Yeah, I wrote all of blue and Max wrote all of red. Uh, and that, and we, but you know, it's, it's, it's weird that I didn't, it didn't occur to me before that, like now that they are complete characters who have a life outside of um, our heads because other people have read the book, have, have drawn fan art uh, in, in really beautiful variation and stuff like that. Um, it's, it's weird to remember that there was a time when we, I think both sort of had no idea what they were like as characters. Like, we knew that I was going to write one and that, that that one was going to be associated with a kind of more embedded consciousness of, you know, sentient ecology, hive mind situation. Um, and that you were going to write the more techie, abstracted, uh, cyberpunky agency one. But I don't think, like, I didn't have a clear sense of what blue was like until I started writing her voice in the letter. Like, and even then, there was a real sense of the characters developing as we wrote them. So, yeah, it's it's like, it's simultaneously really easy to say, oh, yes, I wrote blue and not for red. And then weird to take a pause and go, but we didn't totally in... I mean, (laughs) I didn't have an intentionality behind the character until we started reading what we had written. So, like, they kind of shaped each other as we were writing them, as well as sort of in the narrative. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, We were both intentionally shooting from the hip with a lot of this work. We wanted to keep the focus very tight on these characters and on their relationship. Um, And as a result rather than do exhaustive research or plan extensively what was going to happen. We had a general sense of what the story would be. We had a general sense of who the characters were, and then we dove in immediately and started getting ourselves in trouble. And I think that contributes to the weight or urgency of the storytelling. We have these characters who are trying to figure themselves out and their relationships out and their place in the larger world, even as we as the authors are trying to figure out how everything fits together. The virtue of writing is that unlike a jazz performance or something, you get to go back through and smooth any infelicities or um, 
take advantage of opportunities that you might have missed the first time through. And of course, the curse of writing is you can do that so much that you seed away anything that's particularly interesting about the project. I hope that we've uh, not gone that far. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. Thank you so much. Listeners, we are going to pause here for a word from our sponsors, and then I will be right back with MLL Motar and Max Gladstone. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story. One that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with MLL Motar and Max Gladstone, authors of This Is How You Lose the Time War, published by our friends at Saga Press. And I want to take a moment to remind our listeners that you can order This Is How You Lose the Time War with free shipping from www.quailridgebooks.com. And we will ship all of your other books to you for free as well through the month of April and possibly beyond. ML, Max, please explain the time war to our listeners along with the concept of strands. <laughs> okay. Uh, Spoilers. Max. Okay. <laughs> yeah, sure. So basically, um, let's see. So assume for a moment that time travel gets invented, that that's actually a thing that can that can happen. Um it's as in the case, and knowing people loosely the way we do, it, it seems pretty clear that time travelers' future will attempt to intervene in the past to either to change things to uh, make a better past or to make a past that's more to their liking, or more likely just to ensure their existence and to get some kind of profit out of it. So then you start having to ask some questions about how does time actually work? There's a, you know, there are theories that involve sort of a meta time in which all of time operates that allow you to sort of do some consistent things. There's the back to the future model where there's really just only one flow of time and you can sort of switch up and down. Um, there are the models where if you travel back into the past, then you can't really change things because you will have always necessarily traveled back into the past. So the timeline already incorporates your time travel. We decided to go with a model where um, you can, where there's just, instead of there being this one stream of history that we see when we look back and we try to remember, there are in fact tons of different streams of histories. They're all branching off of one another at every possible moment where things could be changed. Um, And then as a result, in the far future, there are two sort of, main timelines, both of which have independently developed time travel and each of which is trying to ensure their existence and their survival, which means that they have to stop the other one from gaining control of the timeline. So they've been engaged in a temporal, generally cold war, sometimes hot war for 
as long as history has existed and each send their agents back to try to transform history to uh, you know so that it leads forward into their own existence and yeah that's the war um it's a it's a change war it's a time war it's um it's a war of trying to make the past look like what you need it to look like for you to be supported justified and existing um and in that way it's on the one hand this incredibly outlandish wild concept that allows us to set the story in all sorts of strange universes that we can kind of see flickering past like uh I don't know, like the scenery outside of a window uh, on a train. But it's also something that gets at the uh, truth, I think, about the actual world that we live in, which is just how many different sorts of history there are curled up inside mm-hmm. and how um, dangerous it is and how wrong you are when you start assuming that there is, in fact, one single narrative of history that's going in one single direction on the one hand everything happens but on the other hand no single story encompasses everything that has happened and there's a lot of violence that trying to tell any one of those stories does exactly um the the two main futures that we envisioned who are like you know these two temporal superpowers who are trying to destroy each other uh we all we figured like would look a way that is probably we, we wanted to on the one hand, avoid the kind of nature versus technology uh, dichotomy, which is a false one, um, and everyone should read Timothy Morton. <laughs> I don't know, uh, but just uh, the idea that you know that, that humanity is somehow separate from ecology and stuff like that. But we didn't like those ideas, but we also recognize that there is a long tradition of. Uh, in in genre of those two things coming into play and that we could probably get a lot of mileage out of suggesting that aesthetic even if we uh, even if we wanted there to be some different core to the to the difference so we talked about having like one future in which consciousness is embedded in matter and one where it's abstracted from matter to just kind of have something that seemed equal and opposite but that wasn't necessarily that kind of tech versus flowers <laughs> kind of aspect. So there's one future is called garden and it's this like giant consciousness embedded in matter. Um, and one is called the agency uh, and it's more like abstracted, but you know, for all intents and purposes, they look like um, a, a kind of technocracy future versus a kind of um, savage gardeny kind of future. Um, but everything that Max was just saying about sorry, what? No, no, go for it. Okay, uh, everything that Max was saying about um, the, the like the reason we have so strands of time essentially are like different time different timelines, and they, we in the book we also talk about like the braid being this kind of the whole of the the spatiotemporal continuities and stuff all braided together. Um, and the idea of like agents changing things in different timelines and making some of them intersect in different ways, which are totally incomprehensible and ineffable, uh, seemed like the way that we wanted to go because we didn't want the time travel itself to be the story. We wanted it to be a very backgrounded aspect so that we could focus on the two main characters. But within that focus, also like generate this idea that we we are always constantly 
changing the past and therefore changing the future. Like any time we do any kind of historical research and recover, um, you know, queer people, people of color, um, different class-based perspectives from history that has traditionally been dominated by kind of great man theories of history and stuff like that, we effectively change... We, I mean, the past has always already happened, but by changing our narratives about the past, we also change the ways in which we interact with those narratives and also change the future, consequently, um, if you, you know, because we are always curating um, different narratives about the past to kind of inform our actions moving forward. So uh, it felt really generative to have all of those metaphors at work um, as, as we were also focusing in on these characters who each, you know, comes from a side and is representing and fighting for that side, but is also really alienated uh, from that side. It's also personal. Um, I think any relationship that you start, whether it's a friendship or a love affair, sort of infiltrates you. It travels back through your memories. You start, in some ways, remembering... You remember aspects of your own history that are that seem in retrospect to foretell or prepare you for some later encounter or from some later flowering, something that seems even significant at the time, but later achieves a new level of significance uh, retrospectively. A person that yeah. you, you were very close to when you were younger turns out to be the person that your later best friend reminds you of. Um, and that, that was something that the time travel metaphor also allowed us to explore. These paths crossing and diverging, um, prefiguring and refiguring the characters in each other's histories. Right, thank also, you. Also, like, there's the idea of, um, uh, the idea that they, like, there's a point at which, um, I think, I can't remember now which one it was. I think it was Blue saying, um, you know, uh, I want, oh, you're you're hanging out with Socrates. I wonder if we knew any of the same ones. Yeah, uh, right. So like this idea that there are like lots of different Socrateses and lots of different Genghis Khans and stuff like that. And that you might have encountered different ones. That really speaks to me uh, to this idea that, you know, say that you read the same book as a friend, but one of you read it when they were, 10 and the other read it when they were 20 you know and that you've you've read this book at really different moments in your formation and have really different interactions with it but the book is the same you know the book hasn't changed but you have changed differently than you might have depending on when you encountered that book and I felt like that is so much a part of the conversations that you have with friends who you are meeting or making and stuff like that and, Absolutely. and, and also, also the, 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 the yeah. fact that like that in a way, because people's um, opinions about, especially works of art that are really important to them, are formed in that first rush of exposure and then in the constant revisiting of that rush in memory, even if they go back to that work of art over and over again. Um, for example, like I read The Westing Game for the first time when I was, I don't know, not, 10 maybe? Um, and I've gone back to that book over the years 
but in some ways I'm always going back to the person that I was when I'm reading that was reading that book for the first time yeah and comparing contrasting what strikes me differently oh this is a lot more radical of a book than I could have recognized when I was 10 oh that character <laughs> yeah. really has sort of a new shape to her that I wasn't even prepared to uh, to grok but then if you have a conversation with a friend of yours who read the book for the first time in their 20s or last year, in some ways, the you that you were when you were 10 is now having a conversation with your friend who is yeah. like an adult your age. Um, there are a whole <laughs> bunch of other yous that are also having that conversation. But one of the people at the table is 10-year-old you who thought Turtle Wexler was really awesome. That's a, yeah. that's interesting. <laughs> description of like what happened in as much as I read the Western game for the first time last year and I really loved it um, and I literally actually I read it specifically because um, you, we were at Brookline Booksmith doing an event and after the event uh, I asked one of the booksellers to just recommend me a book that was old that she thought I should read because like I uh, one of my other lives uh, I am I am one of the critics who acclaims Matt um, so I, uh, I, I'm often, you know, reading, <laughs> oh, very, very well deserved. Um, but I, uh, I had basically, um, I'm always reading books that are coming out like three to six to 12 months in the future. Uh, and they always like, it, it's difficult to make decisions between them in order to decide what to review. And I just wanted to kind of shove all of that decision-making aside and read an old book that wasn't clamoring for my attention um, and stuff. And so uh, the uh, the bookseller in question recommended this to me, and I was delighted to get to read something that I, that I realized thereafter like has actually been a part of the childhoods of many of my friends, and I've never heard of it, partly probably because of growing up in Canada. Um, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, very good. And um, Mal, I actually want to spin off of something that you said a moment ago, and that is in reference to the multiple versions of the same person in this novel. That's the the multiple Genghis Khans or, or Gingai, maybe is the plural, and the multiple uh, Socrates. <laughs> yeah, the the multiple Socrates who um, I still want to call Socrates, thanks to another great time travel story, <laughs> uh, Bill and Ted. Um, can you talk to us about the idea of these people, the Genghis Khans and the Socrates, and why they are important figures in each strand, though they may be different people in each strand? Um, I think there was... So this, this kind of comes back to the fact that we were doing no research as we were writing this book. So our, like, necessarily... The, we had recourse only to the narratives of history that we carry with us. Uh, so, like, it, I think there is potentially, you know, in a different strand, a version of this book that is four times as long and uh, is, you know, more of a kind of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell book thing where stuff is happening in footnotes and things have been meticulously researched and you see a lot more of the respective... Uh, futures and a lot more of the invented worlds and there are uh, there, there are famous people who are think people who we've invented instead of drawing out of a liberal arts degree, you know, stuff like that. Um, but ultimately because uh, these letters and these, uh, these, these vignettes and stuff were built out of 
what we had with us in this gazebo where also there was no internet. Um, we just kind of uh, like drew mostly on, on those elements of our education. So, uh, so like math studied uh, Chinese language and history and culture. I don't know, what is the name of the degree that you did math? Because like, I feel like you just studied lots of things. Yeah, I did study lots of things. I chose a degree that allowed me to study basically anything that I wanted, so long as it intersected with Chinese in some way. Um, so, so that. Mm. I did, whereas I just did, yeah, and whereas my, my education is mostly doubling down on uh, an English degree way too many times, so... Uh, you know, I study. I, I'm I'm a scholar of British Romanticism. Uh, so there, like things that were important to studying British Romanticism, are very much a part of those things. So the um, so you know, classical antiquity and uh, British Romanticism and the nineties <laughs> are kinds of you know cultural touchstones uh, in this book, which. In an alternate timeline, if I were, if, like, if we were trying to make a very different project of this, I would actually be trying to get away from and explode potentially, uh, in order to to do something, I don't know, more ambitious and gargantuan. But no, this book is plenty ambitious. I mean, it's like, it's, but all this to say that, like, we instead of instead of trying to say, um, you know, who is important and why. We just kind of kept going back to a why not in terms of like why why shouldn't you know um, songs that we knew, know from childhood or why why like the things that make us us as people why not have those things be the important things in this world that we are also making up. Um, this goes so, back also yeah. to to the point that I was raising about the dangers of overworking something. Um, I yeah. do like <laughs> overneeding the dough almost. Like I do think that there is this other version of the book that is out there, as you say, but there's so much of what's special and cool about this book, I think, came from the fact that we were um, just bringing our whole selves to it in a pretty unguarded way because we were writing just for each other and we trusted each other like we didn't want it wasn't as though we thought this will never see the light of day we were writing it with an intent of sending it out and getting it published but the big difference between writing this novel and writing any of my other novels is I, rather than thinking i want this to have some community of readers uh, i was thinking oh, i want this to have one particular reader and she's sitting right across the table from me so as a result the sort of structure that emerged became something like a chess game or maybe a, a go game is probably a better analogy. You start off putting individual stones on the table and the patterns take shape on the board that are dependent not just on overall principles of strategy but on who you are as a human being at this precise moment trying to do this almost impossible task where does your attention slip what naturally draws you what details what uh, historical facts what um, sense of rhythm and timing what feelings about importance what, what, what values bubble up to the surface when you are in this extremely high pressure situation and um, I, there's, uh, there's a, a glory to that that I wouldn't want to give up and, and pass away. 
Right. Thank you so yeah, much. I agree. Excellent. And um, finally, I want to ask you about a book that you bring up late in this novel. This is how you lose <laughs> the time war. And that book is Travel Light by Naomi Mitchison. Um, this is a book that remains unchanged no matter what strand it is discovered in, unlike um, people or other media. Why does this book, Travel Light, remain unchanged? Travel's extremely light. Uh, it travels extremely light. And it travels light. <laughs> um, in terms of, it, it travels exceptionally light. Um, so the thing about this book, uh, I want to I want to shout out to my, my very, very dear friend, Karen Meissner, um, who sent me this book as a gift, uh, almost like the second that Small Deer Press reprinted it. Um, and when she sent it to me, I was living in... Uh, I was living in Cornwall in the UK. Uh, I was uh, at a, a very a, a very miserable time uh, in my PhD, and I I just like and I, I sort of didn't read it for a while because I thought I, like, I didn't know anything about it. And I even though Karen is absolutely not the kind of person who would send me a self help book, it sort of like suggested a self help book to me. Um, and then I just uh, like I, I picked it up one day and started reading it, and it was the most beautiful and necessary, and and just like needful and nourishing book uh, that uh, that I had read in a very long time. And the the overwhelming feeling that I had uh, in response to it was that it felt like a book that like the, that I had like I wished I had read it when I was seven that it felt like there would have been like a, a space on the bookshelf of my heart that had been lying empty, uh, waiting for just this book to kind of be slotted into it. Um, and and I ended up writing about it a lot. Like I, I wrote a piece for NPR about it. Um, I ended up learning a lot about Naomi Mitchison who wrote it and, and just felt this, like this sense of awe, outrage and loss all at the same time that here was a woman who lived to be over a hundred and who wrote over 90 books, one of which was this one, uh, who was good friends with Tolkien and who, you know, read early drafts of, of uh, Lord of the Rings and uh, was a critic and like had lived this extraordinary life as well. She was a member of the Scottish aristocracy and she traveled very, very widely and she had a, a, a plural marriage and several children and was an advocate for birth control really early. Like, just this really extraordinary life and I'd never heard of her. And I had been studying English literature, like British literature uh, for a frustratingly long amount of time at this point. And to have not even heard of her was just outrageous to me. Um, and so I, I just like, so I, I feel, um, I feel like since then, and I'm, this is like literally, we're talking, I want to say, I think I read it in like 2012 or 2013. Um, and and I, I just felt like since uh, then. Was the, one of the first things of yours that I'd ever written, like before I even was paying attention to the byline on things like that. <laughs> I still love that. And exactly. And this is, this is the other thing. Like, it, it kind of, this book found its way into into our, like, the history of our friendship as well. And that it was one of the first things of mine that you read. Uh, like, the, the, the piece about it, I think it's called Crossroads and Coins. 
Um, and uh, and it also was just like it, it ties all of these little things together. So it remains unchanged because in for me, um, I mean, it is so important to me. And it, I want I think I, the reason I wrote that line that way because it is something that that Blue says to Red. Blue recommends this book. Um, it's just like I, I feel so powerfully in love with this book and with the way it made me feel and with the, the, the view that it made me take of my life up until this point. Um, uh, but it, it felt like a time traveling book itself. You know, it felt like it felt like it has agency in the way that red and blue do with regard to timelines and time travel. It, it feels like an, an agent uh, instead of something that agents act upon and uh, and change and stuff. So I wanted to just honor that and respect that with uh, with, with that line. And just because, like, I, I got Max to read the book um, as well. And we ended up, like, having conversations about it and stuff. And uh, and I, I just loved that. So it's, it's kind of got these multiple layers of intersection with uh, with our friendship, too. Yeah, and it's, it's also a book um, that... has a very different message than a lot of um, kind of accretive, uh, like achievement-based fantasy does. It's it's a book that is about flexibility and divestiture and about other avenues than a kind of brittle victory. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's a it's a book that's about brittleness in a lot of ways, and a, about um, other paths that people or that a society could take. All of it sort of reflected through or manifested in the character of this one girl and her relationships with these big mythological powers that she grows up around. Um, and that also felt very appropriate to what we were trying to do in Time War. This question of what winning was, what victory was, the the image of the dragons, and of the emperor himself as a kind of dragon. Um, All right, excellent. Thank you so much, listeners. I have been speaking with MLL Motar and Max Gladstone, the authors of This Is How You Lose the Time War, published by our friends at Saga Press. This is a fantastic book. It is a unique book. I cannot recommend it highly enough. This is the book that you want to read right now while you are sitting at home. ML, Max, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having us. Once again, I would like to thank MLL Motar and Max Gladstone for joining me. Copies of This Is How You Lose the Time War can be ordered at www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping for the month of April at least. I would like to thank our sponsors, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get three months of audiobooks for the price of one and support community bookstores. My name is Jason Jefferies and this has been Bookin'.